0: Welcome back, primetimers. I'm Charlie Stevens, your host, and this is Primetime DC, bringing together the best in venture capital to compete around the hottest topics in tech. Today, we discuss funding female founders, no code engineers, and Shaq's got a SPAC? That's right. Before we get started, we appreciate all your support. We're growing this show out organically. We're just featured in Cheddar, and if you're a fan of the show, We ask for your support in liking it, commenting and sharing with anybody in your community. We need that help. We need to keep this up. We appreciate that very much. Now let's meet today's top venture capitalist walking into our VC Thunderdome. Cassandra Carruthers up evil
1: investments. Hey everyone, thanks for having me. I'm Cassandra, the tin cup of VC. The reason is that I played golf in college and I'm almost as good with a seven iron.
0: How about that Kevin Costner reference? Charlie O'Donnell, Brooklyn Bridge Ventures.
2: Hi, I'm Charlie O'Donnell from Brooklyn Bridge Ventures and my favorite political sandwich is a sleepy Joe.
0: Super dicey O'Donnell over there, like that. You want
3: fries and a shake? Matt Conwell. Rare Breed Ventures. How's it going, everybody? I'm Mac the VC, your favorite VC's favorite VC. Solid confidence, Mac. Let's see how far it takes you. John Frankel,
0: FF Venture Capital.
4: Uh, great to be here. Uh, as folks know, I'm the uh, Taylor Swift of Venture Capital.
0: John coming in off a devastating loss in the finals, but John, don't worry, shake it off. Just shake it off. Here's how our show works. We're gonna talk about the latest news in tech funding and innovation, and our venture capitalists are gonna give their take. We're gonna give them points based on style, stats, and facts. The top two VCs with the most points will move on to the finals and go head-to-head in our money round. Winner takes all, including the platform to discuss and promote whatever they choose. Now let's jump into the most electric show in business
4: entertainment. It's Primetime VC, the show of accredited banking.
0: Primetime VC is supported by First Republic Bank, banking built for innovators. Trinet, expertly human HR solutions. Brex, scale your business faster with Brex. Cash management and corporate cards for your team in 10 minutes or less. Use our link in the show description to sign up today. E2 generations, we solve problems that live on Excel. Fox Rothschild, nimble, entrepreneurial, resourceful, qualities you want in your lawyer. Go to foxrothschild.com to learn more about their startup and venture capital practice.
3: First in.
0: book released data finding that venture funding for female founders has hit its lowest quarterly total in three years. Yet female founders have outperformed in many metrics. Why do you think female founders lost ground? And who are a few rock star female founders we should keep an eye out for? John, start us off.
4: Well, look, firstly, the most important thing is if you don't measure it, it doesn't happen. And the metric that's been highlighted here are female founders, but we have founders of uh, minority founders we need to track as well. And if PitchBook's tracking it, it hasn't hit the headlines. It should. We need to see it. So firstly, if you don't measure, it doesn't happen. Secondly, we're measuring it. It didn't happen. Now we can do something about it. One quarter doesn't make a trend. One swallow doesn't make a summer, as we say in England. However, What's important here is that people are attentive. There was a lot of noise and indignation in the VC sphere talking through what we were doing wrong and right and the like, let's do this with action. Let's talk about who are the great female founders out there. Let's give them a platform, give them a voice. Um, Ed Zimmerman at Lernstein has done a great job in this regard and so shout out to Ed on this but we need to platform female minority founders, build their voice, everything will follow. It takes time. Nothing, like, nothing moves in VC in a month, in a year. It takes time. But I think with people proactively trying to make it happen, it will. All right, let's move over to Cassandra.
1: To the thing, Um, to echo John, I agree, it's not just female founders, it's minority founders, which are not only underrepresented, but they're severely underestimated, and the numbers have been quite abysmal, not only for female founders, um, but black, indigenous, people of color, LGBTQ founders as well. I don't believe that it's an issue of numbers. There are a, an amazing and astounding amount of female founders and minority founders emerging with fantastic ideas all the time um, at all stages of growth. It's really, it lies with us, the investors and everyone in on both sides of the ecosystem to, Uh, to surface those amazing founders and make sure that they're funded. Um, We need more women at the table at VC firms. We need more minorities and underrepresented and underestimated people at the table so that these founders are actually discovered in the first place. How about
0: any rock star female founders that you're seeing, Cassandra? Yeah,
1: so a couple um, that I've been following and I have not invested in them personally. One I really want to plug is Jasmine Crow. She's out of Atlanta. She's the founder and CEO of Gooder. Um, the website, I believe, is Do Gooder. And it's essentially a technology platform that is um, aimed to reduce food waste and repopulate that wasted food from places like grocery stores and restaurants to communities in need. And she's been doing fantastic efforts as well around the pandemic, making sure that uh, communities are getting food during this really difficult time. And then just a couple of others in the deep tech space. Um, One is Esmeralda Megali. Um, She's based out of California now, I believe, but originally from Europe. Um, she's doing a platform for uh, next-gen wearable technology to measure multi-parametric uh, biomarkers via sweat, which is amazing.
0: Both rock stars, absolutely. Mac, how about yourself? So Female is, founders.
3: So for founders, we got Shelly Bell, Black Girl Ventures, supporting uh, black women entrepreneurs out there in the space. We got the Shauna Spencer, TV, an online streaming platform for black and brown directors, actors, and creators. We got um, Shauna Step Jones at Devaneering Labs. They're a little bit in stealth, but you're going to hear a lot of noise coming from them. But at the end of the day, the only thing that happened in the world of VC is they found a new shiny object to chase. You know, there was a time where it's like, okay, gender diversity, we need to invest in women. Now it's, okay, George Floyd happened, now we got to invest in black people. Next thing you know, it's going to be another shiny object for them to chase. But it's just a little piece. They always save a little sliver of their money, to chase around, the giveaways, the to, to do some diversity or special money to put out there to make the for branding or whatever. But at the end of the day, they still invest in what they invest in. That's not changing until we change it. Yeah, well said. Well
0: said, Charlie. Uh, why are these female founders not getting the funding right now?
2: Well, uh, let's just dispel one myth, and that's that VCs like to take risk. During the pandemic, VCs are scared. Right? They're worried about. Uh, recession, being able to raise their next fund. And when VCs do that, they retreat. They retreat into founders that seem safe, founders that are in their network. And and frankly, most VCs don't have diverse networks. They haven't done the work to broaden the base of people uh, they're interacting with. Um, I've done a lot of work in this area. I've backed almost 30 female founders at Brooklyn Bridge Ventures, about 50% of the teams that I've backed are diverse, frankly, it's not that hard if you're willing to do the work. But um, yeah, it's a serious problem going on and it's made worse by this time period.
0: Yeah, give me one uh, rock star that's standing out right now doing big things, Charlie.
2: Yeah, sure, so um, it's hard to pick from uh, my founders but I'll pick out um, uh, Fatima Collins from uh, 10 Little. Uh, 10 Little is a subscription kids shoes brand and they're broadening out uh, their product base. Uh, companies every month uh, been growing significantly and really, really doing an amazing job, her and her co-founder, Julie. Yeah.
0: John, do you have one female founder you want to give a shout out to that's uh, doing big things?
2: You know, I was, I was thinking about this earlier. We've
4: got a, a slew of people to refer to, um, but I'm going to shout out to Monica Landers. Monica is the CEO of StoryFit. StoryFit is an AI company, so it's deep tech, led by a woman founder, great in LA and what they do is they read scripts and tell you if they're any good. And I'll tell you, we need that because there's so much terrible stuff on television. I say on television, on Netflix, on, you know, whatever. They read the script, they really give improvements of what can be done. And because it's run by AI, it gets smarter and smarter over time. All the major studios use it. Monica is a great leader. Um, and this is
0: a great company she's founded. Yep. It, I will make the judgment based on what they say about Die Hard, the greatest movie of all time, which we've talked about in the past. Best movie of all time, also a Christmas movie. Yes, John. Uh, also, I want to give a shout out. It's, it's absolutely
4: a Christmas movie. Absolutely,
0: it's just all time great. Uh, Isa Watson Squad. That's my shout out to female founder doing big things, and also the f- founders over at the Bordist. NFX recently posted a blog titled the new mindset of product market fit, comparing old founder mindset of build it first versus new founder mindset of market the product first. Which approach do you agree with and what are the effective methods you've seen in successful founders? Mac, start us off.
3: So when it comes to this idea of um, market first versus build it first, when I built my first company, we built it first and we didn't get customers for two years. When I built my second company, I marketed it first I had customers and raised money in my first three months, right? So I'm all about market first. And Rare Breed Ventures, part of our thesis is we invest in companies that have uh, unique or repeatable customer acquisition strategy. So uh, an example of a found like this is uh, Femi from ScholarMe. When I first met him, he was a 17-year-old kid out of high school building a company that had no way of ever making it. But he got 25,000 users in the first three months. And I asked him how he did it. He said, I used a Venmo hack. It was the craziest, most coolest thing I'd ever heard. And I also realized he's one of the smartest founders I would ever meet. So we were the first backer for him outside the state of Maryland, and now he's on a rocket ship. So for me, market first. Find out if people actually want to spend money on it. It's a
2: good story, too. Charlie, what do you think? Yeah, I'm 100% in agreement on market first. I think. You know, you can tinker your way into um, revenue if you're in a market where there's wind at your back. But, um, you know, a lot of times people spend all their money and all their time building something that just frankly nobody wants and it's not a feature or two away from being a business. So if you start out with a market where the wind's at your back, uh, you're gonna have a real advantage. All right,
0: Cassandra. Your thoughts?
1: Agree on market first, um, especially in areas like B2B enterprise tech, anything to do with consumer. I think it's incredibly important to establish that demand first and also in a lot of spaces that are increasingly competitive and noisy and difficult to really make a mark in. As a deep tech investor, I'd say it's a little tough because a lot of the companies we look at are coming out of 15 years of PhD research. And so they do have more of a build it first mindset, um, which I think is okay with the uh, caveat that they are not going so tech driven and they are working backwards from some sort of problem um, at the outset.
0: I guess you're both agreeing here. We're gonna go over to uh, John you have a different opinion
4: here? Well, I was going to say market fit, but given everyone else has said market fit, I'm going to say no, because it would be boring to just agree with everyone. So, if it's consumer-based, market fit can make a lot of sense. Enterprise-based, you kind of have to have a product to put in front of people. What we, and we we are predominantly enterprise, 75% plus enterprise at FF Venture Capital. What we see as the situation, though, is if you do come product first, you can become a science experiment. If you don't engage with customers early in your business, you don't know if it fits or doesn't fit. So we really encourage early revenues, cheap capital, early revenues, huge information content, and early revenues to stop the founders becoming arrogant that they know the solution without having the customers give them feedback. So I think, you know, it's, it's sort of, you've got these two dials and for consumer, you dial up market fit more, but you have to actually have the product fitting as well. So it's a little bit more subtle. Anyway, I couldn't just agree with everyone.
0: I appreciate you going against the grain. Are there any other sectors, I guess I'll throw out there that you think that market first is the way to go? Cassandra, Mac or Charlie?
3: I would say for most sectors, but to Cassandra's point, you know, for some deep tech, deep tech stuff, for some tech transfer things, yes, you're going to build it first. But, you know, I, I will also say this, right? Steve Jobs never asked anybody how to build the iPhone. He didn't do any testing or ask people if they wanted to get rid of keyboards, which is why I had a Blackberry for years because I hated the fact that I just had to touch a screen. I missed my keyboard. Steve Jobs should talk to me first.
0: Seth Levine, partner Foundry Group, recently described the differences between successful top performing VC funds versus the average performing funds are incredibly wide. Venture is a hits business with a typical fund having up to 30 to 40 investments and the chance of picking a true outlier, returning a multiple are quite small. What strategies are you seeing some of the best fund managers do to increase the odds of finding true outliers or I guess you could say unicorns? Cassandra, what do you think? Sure.
1: Um, I think part of this strategy that's extremely important boils down to what funds and fund managers are looking for in the founding teams themselves, especially at the very early stage or generally early stage. Um, At Upheaval, we've been very conscientious about forming a, a very generalist fund under the broad umbrella of deep tech. And so we're completely sector agnostic within deep tech, hardware, software agnostic, Um, Absolutely geography agnostic. So we believe truly and live that belief as well, um, purposefully by sourcing deal flow from other parts of the world that fantastic founders can truly be coming from anywhere. They don't need the traditional Harvard or MIT pedigree, although that doesn't hurt. And then to that fact, too, I've seen a lot of great fund managers at places like Lightship Capital, for example, um, which is investing in Black founders uh, largely across North America and elsewhere, I believe. Um, Also Plum Alley, where Thea used to be, um, and a couple of other funds like Gingerbread Capital that are exclusively focused on boosting their female founder deal flow specifically, which is proven to lead to great returns as well.
0: Shout out to Brian Brackeen at at Lightship, definitely. Uh, Charlie yourself here, what do you think uh, strategies of some of the best fund managers and uh, picking unicorns?
2: Yeah, sure, so I actually started my career on the other side of the table, at the limited partner side, so I, I did a fair amount of work in this, and the reality is there's no one single strategy. You need to lean into what you do best and stay consistent. I think consistency is really, really important. Not letting your fund size get bigger than you're comfortable with. I think the other thing is, um, Being willing to to make bets with conviction, you know, if you tiptoe into a a pre-seed round and don't double or triple down until the Series D or Series E, the amount that you're paying in price is not going to make your fund. You need to be making uh, bigger bets earlier on when the shares are cheap so you can make that multiple return on your fund.
4: Right.
0: John, your thoughts on this? Okay,
2: this is a big
4: question. I'm going to try and and compress the answer. First thing is, look at the data. What's the data tell you? VC is a really peculiar investment class. It is the ultimate buy and hold. And so the reason why you have this wide dispersion of returns is because you're holding it for such a long period of time. There's no way to exit until the end in 98% of the cases. So you're locked in what the data tells you is portfolio construction is important sufficiently diversified not too diversified we run a model where we have three dollars reserved for every initial dollar that goes in but we do that across the portfolio not deal by deal uh and we definitely concentrate in and we stop investing at the 50 million valuation so we start at the seed we end at the 50 million we like a narrow range that we invest in so that we can get the multiples for the exit. The other thing that's important to understand is in the U.S. on average, 3,000 companies get seed funded, 300 get to a Series B, 30 go public. So 10% get to a Series B, 1% go public. But once you get to a Series B, you're significantly de-risked. Within our portfolio, we've been doing it for about 12 years consistently. Um, About 50% of our seed funded companies get to a series B. So we're running about five times the average and we do that by being very engaged because we think we can affect the outcome. The important thing to understand Mm -hmm. is, is the unicorn born the day the company is founded or along the journey? And we believe along the journey.
0: Thank you, John. I gave you a couple extra seconds there. Uh, Mac, your thoughts here? Uh, strategies, some of the best strategies you've seen, uh, picking possible unicorns and you know making some money. Uh,
3: let's start off with the whole idea of the word outlier. It means it's rare, right? So most fund managers aren't going to hit outliers. It's just it is what it is. Like it's just the numbers game. But a strategy means you need to be looking for and an investing in the places where others aren't. And first and foremost, this is one of the reasons why we see pre C and C getting so hot over the last few years because. The ability to put in smaller dollars earlier to then be able to spread that across more companies and still get a high outcome at the end, there's something really there there. The other thing is you want to invest where there's white noise, you know, where there's where there's gaps in the market. That's why all these funds like Lightship Capital, shout out to Candace, you know, Brian's the husband, Candace is the wife, she's the one who really runs everything over the Lightship. How you doing, Candace? Just wanted to say hi. But, you know... Investing in founders in the Midwest, investing in underrepresented founders, really investing in founders that are working in spaces that normally don't get funding. That's where there's white noise. That's where there's there. You have a higher chance of getting a large outcome because there's just no capital going there before. So there's these are these are areas that have um, are are looking for innovation and looking. For, for solutions, and there's gonna be a lot of solutions coming up over the next few years. I think we're actually gonna see the number of unicorns grow because we're gonna see the diversity of companies getting invested in grow. Yeah. What about the thoughts on the CB Insights Mosaic uh,
0: AI predictor for unicorns? I mean, are you willing to use that right now or is it more of this uh, Moneyball approach and trying to use you know funds appropriately? Look,
3: there's a million and one approaches to come up with trying to figure out which companies work with the data shown over time nobody's perfect and there's no one strategy to make it there's a bunch of different strategies to go me and my team at rare breed we do some data we do some gut but if you talk to the full successful at six four five they're all data driven and you know what we're both going to be successful that's how that
0: works anyone else have thoughts on the uh, ai predictor of unicorns over at cb insights
2: garbage in garbage out the data on venture is all over the map, it's, you know, historically a very uh, difficult asset class to get complete data on. And, um, you know, so I, I, I wouldn't trust it.
4: And, and I would also come back to this point, that at what point does it become a brilliant successful businesses? We all know the stories of great exits that were going bankrupt the week before, but someone came along and bought them, or business that was fantastic And then just tripped over their shoelaces and face planted at the final, you know, at the final rung of the of the um, of the opportunity. Bottom line is, we don't know. Not you know, all of us here make thousands of decisions in a given year, and at the end of a year, when you do an accounting of those decisions, were they right or wrong? We don't know. We only know when it exits. If it exits well, we were genius. If it exits badly, we were genius on this other company. You know, this is the most infuriating business with regard to getting feedback. It takes a couple of decades to know if you should have done it in the first place.
0: You're all geniuses in my book and that's why you're on the show. We're gonna move into round two. This is probably the closest round one we've had with a lot of gems being dropped. So this is good. Let's keep the momentum going and we're gonna roll into buy or sell. Buy or sell. This is Buy or Sell, rapid fire segment where our VCs choose if they're for it and they buy or they're against it and they sell. Let's go. Uncork, a New York City based no code application platform just raised $207 million in Series C funding and is valued at $2 billion. The software company helps large enterprises build complex custom software faster. No code platforms continue to gain momentum even to the point where you're now seeing job postings for no code engineers. Buy or sell the future of no code platforms. Charlie, kick us off.
2: Yeah, I'm going to say sell, not because I'm not a believer in no code. I think it's fantastic that you can lower the bar for what skill set you possibly need to get something up and running but ultimately it's gonna get pushed down in the stack, right? Technology gets easier and easier to use over time. I think you'll see other platforms add these types of features. And so I'm not sure that I would actually wanna be the platform itself, but we all benefit as users. Okay,
0: Cassandra, do you agree with that?
1: Um, My my overall stance actually is to buy the future of no code platforms, but I see a lot of potential issues emerging around like d- down there all the legacy code and technical debt that will emerge down the line because of use of these platforms and so enhanced need for um, very senior developers potentially who have a lot of hands-on experience um, weeding in and out of uh, really across languages and frameworks and tech stacks that will be able to kind of reverse the problems that potentially arise because of it but I still see value
0: yeah.
3: Mac, buy or sell no-code platforms? I'm buying no-code platforms because there's a, there's going to be a couple unicorns that come out of it. Hopefully, I get one. It's what we do. Um, also, buying it because I'm a software engineer by trade. I understand how this stuff works. Coding sucks. It's really boring. It's not the most fun job in the world. So, being able to just drag and drop and make stuff happen, I'm all for it. But... There is still going to be a need for people who can get in and have deep technical skills. I mean, look, if you can do COBOL, you still got a job out there in the world. So, you know, there's still going to be a need for those real technical developers, but I'm buying on the no code. John, you agree with uh, Mac? So
4: I'm actually old enough to remember people who used to program in Assembler. Um, It's all ones and zeros at the end. And you have these abstract layers to basic and visual basic and etc. Now the hype term, no code. Yes, I'm a buyer because people are lazy and they want to have fun. And this allows them to code more efficiently, more effectively, not efficiently in terms of use of cycles and stuff. But we just got so many more cycles nowadays. We don't have to program in the lower level languages. Um, So yeah, I'm a buyer.
0: Cassandra, I see you making some faces over there. You want to chime in?
1: <laughs> no, I'm just laughing about assembler comments and COBOL. It brings, brings some fun thoughts.
2: <laughs> Nothing to add, though.
0: Okay. Charlie, you're the only one selling here. Uh, you want to rebuttal against any of these fine VCs?
2: Now, I'm a solo GP, so I don't really care about the other opinions of partners around the table. <laughs> I make my choice. I go with it.
0: Coinbase CEO, Brian Armstrong published an open memo, essentially banning political activism at work because he sees it as a distraction. Buy or sell Brian's managerial decision. Mac, what are your thoughts on this?
3: I'm selling that. People ain't robots, man. If I'm at work and I got something to say, I'm gonna say. Now, at the end of the day, there are consequences to what we say and there are things that are socially unacceptable. That's true, right? But telling people what they can and can't say or can and can't do, especially on their free time, I ain't with that. But they, but it does have to be within reasons. Putting the flat out, you can't do this, that ain't going to work. That ain't how you get top talent. You ain't getting me, and I'm the best one out
0: there. The, the humble brag from Mac is like all time, and I like it. He just keeps coming with the confidence. Uh, John, what are your thoughts on this?
4: <sighs> I mean, I'm going to say bye. I think the... That... This is really difficult. I totally agree with Matt. I totally agree with Matt. People should be free to say things at work and the like. The problem is that we don't have open political discourse in this country. You have people who believe A and people who believe B and they can't have a conversation around the subject without it getting very heated. I think work is a place where people should be able to share things, but it shouldn't be part of the work. Elsewise, you end up with uni- uniformity of thought and you don't end up with diversity of opinion. And I'm a great believer in diversity in all of its flavors. And I think the workplace should be politically neutral, but should allow people to express what they want to express in appropriate professional ways. That's well said. Cassandra, your thoughts?
1: Um, I'm going to sell the idea. I forgot which one was (laughs) agreement or disagreement. Um, I So I support political activism being able to happen at the workplace is my stance, but uh, not to say, I mean, I've been in workplaces where there's like a hashtag politics Slack channel and that I'm not a fan of. I don't think um, constant political discourse, must, much to John's point, is it doesn't really have a place at the workplace. Um, and while I'm a fan of bring your whole self to work, I think that there are certain topics that are best left discussed. If you make friends with your coworkers, fine. If you do that over lunch, fine. Um, but I think political activism is a completely different point, and it's allowing things like Black Lives Matter and Me Too and not to use the you know most common buzz terms, but really just anything that people care about more deeply beyond a personal level and that needs to happen at a societal level. If your employer happens to have tens of thousands of employees and they're not budging on these matters that need to happen, it is the
2: activism that might actually get those shifts to occur. Yeah,
0: a lot of good points. Charlie, what about this decision for you?
2: Wow. Um... Can I leverage up my short on this one? Because uh, this is mind-boggling, mind-bog- ugh, mind-bogglingly boggling uh, mind wrong. It is a decision in which it caused 5% of the workforce to walk out the door and it's 5% of the workforce who in the middle of a pandemic feels like they are the most employable and feels like they won't risk being unemployed, right? So that's not the developers on the margin. That's some of their best people that are walking out the door. That's that's a bad decision in and of itself, but let alone that like, let's not both sides the idea that uh, taking a stance on things like racism is a political conversation. It's just a right and wrong conversation. And so um, I don't think companies should feel like it's okay to be politically neutral in the face of racism. We're not debating the role of the Fed here. We're debating right and wrong. And when you have uh, your employees who care about things that personally affect them, it's not like they're working productively in these types of times anyway. They need to be there for their workers if you really believe your workers are your number one asset.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like an uphill battle, too, because I'm sure you're friends with a lot of people on social network that you work with, and they're probably posting things, so it's how can you even control it to begin with? Zoom fatigue, combined with our new reality of social distancing, has the hybrid work environment being hyped as the best of both worlds. But how realistic is it in practice? Buy or sell the hybrid work environment. Cassandra, your thoughts on it?
1: I buy the hybrid work environment because I'm a proponent of remote working when it's viable um, and when it doesn't hurt businesses or or teams. I think that not all roles need to be in cubicle um, to be successful. And a lot of people really thrive outside of the office or if they at least have the option. I know right now with with circumstances, we don't have the option. Um, That being said, there's a lot of Issues inherent to the way we 've been forced into virtual work, from security vulnerabilities through to zoom fatigue, which is very real and not always fun to deal with, um, so I think we definitely need some innovation and um, ways of you know mitigating those problems in the future sure, Charlie, your thoughts on the hybrid work environment
2: i 'm going to buy the hybrid work environment with the caveat that that 's not really what we have right now you know we 're forced into it. Kids are home, you know, we're in this environment where not only can I not go into work, but I can't go out and interact with friends after work either. So yeah, it would be a great environment if you prefer to work from home in the morning so you don't get distracted by people, but I think ideally you can come out of your house at the end of the day and you can interact socially with people. So. This this environment is not quite the ideal, but I do think more work flexibility is better.
0: Okay, Mac, uh, thoughts on hybrid work environment?
3: So I'm buying on this because uh, from June to September, I had over 1,100 meetings, most of which were Zoom. Clearly, Zoom fatigue is a thing. I cannot wait till I can take a few meetings in the office or maybe drive to the office so I can listen to my, my audio books and actually get some, some reading done because I haven't been getting done. But I, this is going to be a thing. you know. Rare Ventures was created during this time, and we're probably always going to have a virtual office. We're probably always going to be a virtual organization, but we will have a central location where we can come and gather when needed to. So I'm all about it. I'm down to buy, and it's going to be cool to see what kind of technology pops up out
2: of it. Wow, 1,100 meetings since June. Matt, Matt what's the... What's the last month you wore pants? Uh, last month
3: I wore pants was I think April, maybe maybe March, something like that. Yeah, I'm not wearing pants now. Clearly, it's shorts. You know, it's how it's how we do this. But I got my shirt on. That's, That's all that matters. Purple for the. Race. I'm sorry,
4: you you gotta prove it, man. <laughs> <laughs>
0: John. With that being said, do you agree?
4: Well, firstly, this question is a very non-diverse, narrow question. There are many people who have to go to work, are going to work right now, don't have the luxury of sitting at home, talking through glass to everybody, right? So, you know, this is, a, this is a very narrow question. It is a question we've spent a lot of time talking to our portfolio companies with. We don't know the answer yet. We're not sure there really is a true hybrid. Um, we think if you go hybrid, you're really going remote. Elsewise, you disadvantage the people who decide to work from home because they're not in the office, not getting the face time, not getting the happenstance. So I think for some organizations, they go remote, they call it hybrid, but they have many more offices than they have before. And when they have a meeting, people who are physically together in the office go into separate rooms. So that everybody is, you know, in their little box on the screen talking to each other and it's done in a, um, a fairer way. Uh, it changes how you prepare for meetings. It changes being on time because it's really frustrating when people aren't on time. So I think there are things that change that. The other element mm-hmm. is we have an office in New York. Why do you have an office in New York? Because we meet a lot of people in person. Well, if everybody's working from home, they're not gonna come and meet in the office. So why are we meeting? So I don't know how the whole in-person meeting and being physically close is gonna work out. You know, we anticipate we'll be in the office two, three days a week. We anticipate that with our portfolio companies. If we choose different days, it's highly inefficient. So I don't know how all this works out. I really don't, but it's it's a really good question. Thank you,
0: I wrote it myself. Are there any companies that you're seeing doing, you know, something special with the hybrid work environment or doing something different than you that you're typically seeing out there? Uh, anyone want to jump in here?
2: Yeah, I'll jump in. A portfolio company of mine, Gotena, has basically indicated to its staff that when it is safe to come back to work, there are certain positions and certain teams that are in person positions and there are some that are remote optional so I I think it more makes sense on a team by team and role by role situation you know uh, they are building hardware they have a lab in the office it it just they have to be in the office they have logistics people that have to be uh, present at their job it's not something they can do remotely but um, you know a, a software engineer even a sales team like sales team really doesn't necessarily make sense to be in the office all of the time. So I I think you're going to see parts of companies, uh, make that call.
0: All right. Um, that is the end of our buyer sell. This is the segment where we just start cutting people out, trimming the fat here. And, uh, we're going to start just with Charlie. I think you were the closest to make this final. I hate to cut you out. Uh, but, you're you're gone. I appreciate you coming on. If you want to stick around, we'll we'll be hanging out here. Cassandra Cassandra, I'm sorry, but I, I've given you a couple opportunities to get a little rebuttal, a little extra, and you know, it's you came in last minute, so you're at a disadvantage right away, but we appreciate you coming on. So it's down to, to Mac and John with the energy in the final.
3: If you guys want to smack talk each other in any sort of way. Oh, I mean, we already know who's going to win this so you know it's just a matter of time. It's all the format.
4: I am I'm, I'm excited to have Matt here. He's uh, he's a worthy opponent and I'm I'm really enjoying the time I'm spending with him. So uh, let's see uh, let's see where we get to. The money round.
0: Congratulations. You made it to the money round. We got three more questions. All the points reset. Winner takes all. Let's go. When Shaq has a SPAC, you know we're on to something. Many of us still don't fully understand them, but SPACs deserve the most airtime given that VCs continue to launch them. Share your best definition of a SPAC and why it has become so popular. John, start us off.
4: We have a big problem with IPOs. The IPO banks have become too big to take companies public below a billion in market cap. SPACs, direct listings, are a solution for this. And SPACs actually have really interesting economic alignments, and when you compare them to the cost of going public with a big bank, the actual delta isn't that big. So I like SPACs, I like innovation. Who doesn't like Shaq? So we're gonna have a shack attack SPAC, and I think that's wonderful. Over to Mac. Basically, rich
3: people getting richer. I mean, it's another way, it's another vehicle to make money, that's all it is. I mean, look, SPACs are essentially the same thing as like special purpose vehicles are for, for smaller cap startups. Um, it's just for larger companies, right? So now you're having investors on a larger scale now bring on not just accredited investors, but also retail investors to now buy in or buy with a blank check, a, a larger cap company. Um, to get them to market or get them to IPO or into the public market sooner. Um, But there's going to be a whole bunch of other things come out this way. We know Carter's out there with Carter X on the way. You know There's a lot of different exchanges on on the rise. It's just another financial tool out there that's now hype. It's been around for decades. It ain't new. It's just got a bunch of hype around it and it's cool. It's a way for people to make more money. But the, by the end of the day, all we're doing is trying to innovate around how to get more capital to these companies that are really changing the world around us, and that's what's the most important thing, right? It's not about Smacks. It's not about IPOs. It's about how do we get capital into the hands of the creators and innovators to really change this world, and that's all that we're going. Through. That's a good start for the money round. I
0: like that. I like the rhyming, John. That was pretty good. I mean, I don't know. You prepared for that, or you just flow with it? It's good. Uh, and I'm most important. Most excited for Kanye West's SPAC that's probably gonna come out after his Yee Combinator and all the you know new startups that come from there. So definitely exciting for that. As elections loom, Twitter recently announced major changes to curb the spread of misinformation. There are multiple areas of concern that pose a threat to the safety of our election process. What should tech companies do to improve this election process? Mac, your turn.
3: Look, if you're a company and you deal with providing information to the public, you, you must have fact checked Like what you put out has to be facts to the public. Cause what we know is it's really easy for information to go out to the public and people just believe it. This is why propaganda exists. And so if you are creating a platform that delivers information to the public, you cannot be a platform that delivers propaganda. If you are, you are the problem. You are essentially an enemy of the state. And, this is a, and, and you are doing nothing but hurting the country that you are talking about supporting or hurting the public you're supposed to support. So if you see misinformation, it is up to you to go about fixing it and stop doing these cop-outs of saying, well, we have a report button. If you see something report it." no. You have a higher moral responsibility to the community at large. Do something about it. John, uh,
0: your thoughts on uh, what tech companies should do?
4: Really difficult problem. Section 230 says, if you are a platform, and not a publisher, you have a safe harbor for what's on your platform. If they become editorial, they will lose the safe harbor. They're becoming editorial for all the reasons that Mac highlights. The structural problem is, and if you watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix, you'll see, the structural problem is because these are advertising models, the social networks are trying to box, filter, target, amplify individuals to monetize them. And that's what's causing the problem. But it is very difficult because if the platforms become the guardians, who guards the guardians? And it's it's insoluble. This is good. Rolling
0: into the last question, most important question of the day. Travis Scott teamed up with McDonald's while Dog 208 208- went viral on TikTok with Ocean Spray Cranberry Juice vibing out to old Fleetwood Mac. These are two different influencer marketing paths, both with great outcomes for the brands associated with them. Who's your favorite all-time celebrity influencer that you would choose to help market your brand? John, yourself, what do you think?
4: Oh, gosh. I don't know. Um, You know, I I surf Cameo to look for celebrities that, you know, and like look at the price points and what you can use them for. You know, it's so, uh, I really don't know. I was having a look today. Vincente Fox, the former president of Mexico for $300. Right? Carol Baskin for 299. It's it's exciting. But for me, I got to go for the Hoff, David Hasselhoff because you have to have the classics backing you. So to me, the Hoff
3: Hasselhoff is a good one. Mac, you got someone better? This one's easy for me. It didn't even, t- I didn't even have to think about it. The best celebrity used for influencer marketing? Black Twitter. Black Twitter runs everything. If you want more product, Black Twitter. To ask Popeyes, Popeye sandwich sold out. People out here getting held up over Popeye sandwiches. Why? Black Twitter. Black people move culture. Shout out to my people.
0: It's it's true, black Twitter is unbelievable. Personally, I would have chosen Bo Jackson. I don't know if you could tell the similarities with me and Bo, athleticism, all that good stuff, my guy. Um, Bo knows. Bo knows and Mac knows. Mac, you are a winner. Confetti's gonna drop on your head right now virtually. Congratulations.
4: The final word.
3: Well, thank you for having me on. This is my first time on the show. I already told you I was going to come out to be a winner. Don't worry, I'll be back again. For all of those out there in the VC space, entrepreneurs, keep working hard, keep grinding, keep hustling because this shit is hard. Love y'all. Thanks for watching Primetime
0: VC, your go to source for accredited banter. If you're a VC and you think you got what it takes, Reach out to us on Twitter at primetimevc or go to primetimevc.com. And that goes for brands too. If you want to sponsor a show, more the merrier. We'll see you next week.